1: Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I welcome Jennifer A. Delton, Professor of History at Skidmore College, to discuss her new book, The Industrialists: How the National Association of Manufacturing Shaped American Capitalism, published by Princeton University Press in 2020. The book is part of the terrific politics and society in Modern America series. And could not be more relevant for today's contemporary US politics. The Industrialist details manufacturing's role in the development of capitalism at home and abroad, with implications for how we understand neoliberalism, especially liberal internationalist tendencies. The book argues that liberal internationalism, associated often with Woodrow Wilson, can be seen as a crucial step towards the sort of international institutions. That post World War II European neoliberals were calling for. As the book interrogates how the National Association of Manufacturing did and did not work, the book argues for the NAM as a capitalist modernizer and identifies the wider economic, ideological, and institutional concerns that drove the National Association of Manufacturing. Dr. Delton was a guest on the New Books Network in 2013 when my colleague Christine Lamberson highlighted her previous book, Rethinking the 1950s, How Anti-Communism and the Cold War Made American America Liberal, from Cambridge University Press. And I'm delighted to welcome her back to the New Books Network. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Susan. Thank you so much for having me. Jennifer, before we explore who the National Association of Manufacturers are, And how they help us better understand capitalism and neoliberalism. I want to ask you a bit about how you came to this project. You've written three earlier books Rethinking the 1950s, but also Racial Integration in Corporate America, 1940 to 1990 from Cambridge, and Making Minnesota Liberal Civil Rights and the Transformation of the Democratic Party from the University of Minnesota Press. How does this new book grow out of or depart from those earlier projects? And when did you decide to write about the National Association of Manufacturers? Thanks, Susan. That is
0: um, a great question. I, I actually thought about writing about them when I was doing the research for the Racial Integration in Corporate America book. Like so many uh, historians were, who are looking for a business's point of view, We often turn to the archives at the National Association of Manufacturers because they're one of the few business archives that are available. And the full set, um, all of the papers from 1895 to the present are available. And so historians often turn to the National Association of Manufacturers to get the voice of business. But when I was doing that book, I was looking for, well, how am I to understand this organization? I'm looking at their papers. What's been written about them? And I was surprised to find that no book has been written about them. And I, so I actually just thought someone should write this book. And what I loved about this was, you know, I remember being a PhD student. It was always hard to find, you know, what's my angle going to be? What's my argument? And trying to position yourself, why is this important? And I felt this is a book that needs to be written regardless of what the argument is because it's a valuable resource for anyone doing uh, research in these archives. And again, historians have again and again gone to the NAM archives to do research. So I just, I felt like there was a need. I wish when I had been doing my research, there was a book about the NAM, just to set in context, like who's running the place at the time, um, how are they deciding which records to keep? What are their political leanings at this time? How did it change over time? basic questions like that, um, I was interested in. So it was one of these books that um, I would just like to write this book because there's a need. Now, the editor, my very good (laughs) editor said, no, but you need to do a little bit more than that. And I said, that's fine, because as I do the research, I'm sure an argument will emerge. But the real impetus was just to, this is an organization that has played such a huge role in American politics and American economics. And and also their name keeps coming up as historians and sociologists and others look at their papers and yet no book has been written about them so that's why i decided to write the book
1: it's so interesting this idea that you have this archive that you've been depending upon for all your other research but you realize that there is a story behind that archive what other resources did you need to bring in in terms of government records or interviews to to then Uh, take this more sort of wide lens look at uh, the national, at at the NOM.
0: Yeah, I did. um, I managed to, I was looking for interviews, which was, um, so I was looking for interviews and I did uh, manage to get an interview with the um, man who'd been president from 1990 to, I don't know, 200, 2004, um, so there are there's there's one interview in there, but mainly I went to other papers from other of the directors. William Grady was a very um, influential dire- uh, director uh, and executive uh, and a president of NAM in the 1950s, and I went to his papers. And there were several other papers like that that I found. What was interesting was um, one of the um, executive secretaries um, who was a staff member? Her name was Veda Horsch. She had wanted to write a history of NAM back in the 1950s. It was, um, NAM had a, a bad reputation <laughs> among certain people. And Veda Horsch, who worked there, thought, you know, if only the history were known. And so she actually. Had this plan for a history that included well, you've got to look at the records of the AFL-CIO. You have to go look at the records of uh, the you know this governor, and the you have to go to the national archives, and you have to see what these presidential administrations were doing. And she actually laid out a much more ambitious um, list of resources uh, than I did. But I uh, did rely on um, again some other papers, but. Mostly the trade press and the um, and tracking down things that were um, difficult about companies like Moody's. Moody's is a great resource for finding the size of companies and their capitalization and their, you know that type of information. So I I used Moody's and the trade press, um, in particular.
1: Did you have some sort of aha moment where? You saw a particular piece of paper or file or some interview where you thought, wow, this really changes what I thought or it takes me in a different direction.
0: You know, I had several of those and I'm not sure I can recount um, them, but there was a lot. There was surprising, and I think it might have been Veda Horsch who was the aha moment because typically when people do research on Nam, um, it's it's really all all men and all business owners, um, and she was a staff member who had a louder voice than other staff members, partly because she was keenly interested uh, in writing a history of Nam, and so she reorganized the files, and just. And then she left papers of her doing this work. And that did help me think differently about this project than I would, you know, that a political scientist or a historian, because she reminded me oh, you know, there are staff people here working at NAM. They're negotiating how to deal with the directors. So the NAM is a a collection. It's a trade association, and it's run by directors of different corporations, and and then they form an executive committee. But then gradually they developed a staff, and the staff becomes quite large, and the staff produces most of their um, you know publications and and things. And I hadn't really thought too much about the staff, and so finding her records and her voice and her memos in all of the archives did help me see this as an organization that, you know, yeah, you have, it's run by the self-described capitalists, but then it's employing people like Veda Horsch. And I thought that was just an interesting story. So just her perspective really helped me see things differently and approach it as a workplace, um, as well as uh, a lobbying group and as well as a trade association
1: like having some historical collaborator in the document. I know. I really wanted to
0: give her voice. And she was so, uh, she just sounded like such a lovely person. And um, and you could just see her. Um, I actually wrote an article that I didn't put in the book because I couldn't fit it into the narrative. But I wrote an article of about how she tried to get um, Nam's history written. And she, because, you know, she's, she was actually an executive secretary, so she she was you know hobnobbing with um, you know the the top executives, and you know well educated. She was very interested in in trade issues, and she was very interested in uh, human relations in terms of management. So very well educated woman, but she still was a woman, and she's trying to get this project through. And you just see her in these memos manipulate men's egos to making it think that they thought of the idea and having them run with it. And, you know, the paperwork for that project, which is, you know, basically not a world historical event, but it just to, to be able to see how she was able to have the organization sign on for the project and to fund it. For three hundred thousand dollars, and it's like you know, the whole thing yeah. fell to pieces. It was uh, kind of, <laughs> it just all ends up crashing, and then Veda Horsch then is able to like kind of slip away, like like she had nothing to do with it because <laughs> she had kind of been behind the scenes.
1: Well, we'll so, get we'll get we'll get the article name and link into the show notes. So okay, great. We can yeah, follow up on that. And and I wanna point out that this is a very wide-ranging period of time that you're looking at. You you divide the book into three parts to map onto these three overlapping phases of industrial manufacturing uh, in the United States. The first part is the ascent and the reorganization of industrial manufacturing from the 1890s to 1940. The second part is from 1941 to 1980. Which marks manufacturing's dominance in US society and the world uh, as the US lowers tariffs and pursues free trade. And you point out how the share of GDP peaked in 1953 when manufacturing represented 25.8% of domestic production. And then this begins to decline pretty soon after in 1960. And then the third part of the book is from 1960 to 2004, and it emphasizes deindustrialization. Globalization and the disintegration of the large um, multi-divisional corporations in the 90s. Now you've already mentioned uh, the NAM, but and now I feel like I know the NAM from reading your book. But um, uh, for the rest of the listeners who are both in the United States and across the globe, let's back up and just uh, remind us who who, who they are um, and the place that they have in this um, in this in this capitalist world?
0: So they were a group of businessmen who were founded in 1895, and they got together um, ostensibly, and for the real real reason was for them uh, to expand trade. So they were interested in forming, uh, and it's A trade association and a lobbying group where businessmen who were interested in expanding trade could form together to make their voice louder and to have uh, some unity so that they could lobby the government uh, for um, better trade policies and also so that they could uh, organize and discuss and network within themselves about how to improve industry. So they are both a trade association and a lobbyist, and they end up being one of the major, I guess, a political scientists call them peak associations uh, for American business, specifically manufacturing. They're really significant in the 20th century when manufacturing is at its peak because they're the major manufacturing um Organization, so they're a trade association, which means that they um, have uh, uh, companies join their organization and pay dues, and then um, they presumably they get the benefit of the lobbying, but also the the educational benefit of being in a trade association. So there's a lot of figuring out what best practices are, um, how to Unify manufacturing. How to standardize manufacturing? That's a lot of their early work. So they are both lobbyists and a trade association of the manufacturing sector of the economy. But again, in the twentieth century, that was the the sector of the American economy, and that was the fastest growing.
1: So there's been previous works by both political scientists and historians about the NAM, mostly directed at the role in lobbying the labor movement and U.S. conservatism. But you take a really different approach in the book, because you're emphasizing them as capitalist modernizers and and placing the NAM in both the liberal and progressive traditions. So as I read the book, you were highlighting these, well, part of the genius of the book is how, as you read through the periods, you're surprised by the positions that the NAM is taking. They welcome women workers and workers with disabilities. They support the UN. They seem very cosmopolitan. So this might be a good time for you to, to help us understand the overarching claims of the book and, and let us know how this departs from or maps on to the way the literature has treated this organization previously.
0: Yeah. The the NAM is overwhelmingly seen as a conservative organization, and it was. I'm not arguing that it wasn't. But most historians have, and political scientists, have looked at its role as a lobbying organization. And so it lobbies against the New Deal. It lobbies against government regulation. I I am focusing on the NAM as a manufacturing association, um, and I focus, and so I'm telling the history of manufacturing, and that is the um, story I highlight. I talk about the lobbying. Obviously, it's 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 hard not to, but they really were uh, trying to update um, manufacturing and to keep manufacturing um, successful. So part of that, especially in the early years of the early 20th century, has to do with. Finding safety standards and modernization and supporting education um, so that the the workers they hire have the basic skills to, um, to be workers in these factories. So there is this very this modernizing tendency in the early 20th century. And the, the person whose work um, I draw from most here is Martin Sklar, and that was a, a whole tradition, Gabriel. Kolko, who are they? these were the revisionist historians of the 20th century, who went back and looked at reformers, progressive era reformers, and noticed that they were all supporting capitalism. And NAM was very much a part of this. One of the things that happens with the NAM is that it ends up taking a really um, belligerent anti-union stand. And as a result, it's seen as ultra-conservative um, and that becomes the focus, um, and that, that comes to the fore in terms of their reputation. But they kept on doing all of the things that more liberal, progressive, corporate, capitalist types did as well, which meant that they were very much interested in globalization. They were interested in um uh, having a diverse point of view, part of globalization is that old internationalist dream that if we trade together, we won't go to war together. So that they also tended to be, um, anti-war, which, which, which was tied up with the politics of the directorship at that, at that time. So I'm not going to go into that, but, um, they end up being surprisingly progressive and especially on issues that we, um, we now care about, such as uh, having women in the workplace and civil rights. And in fact, that's how I originally was interested in the National Association of Manufacturers because surprisingly, and when you asked me, what was I most surprised about? Surprisingly, NAM played a fairly active role in helping American companies and factories integrate Um, African-Americans into their workforce in the 1960s. And and even before then, even in the 1940s, um, they were interested in doing that. Of course, they're interested in expanding the labor pool. That's what they're always interested in doing. And to the extent that labor unions um, tightened the labor pool, they wanted to expand it, and they were interested in having all kinds of workers who weren't your typical union workers, such as women and such as people of color. So their um, their interest in integration and having a more diverse workforce had everything to do with fighting the unions. Um, so there was there was definitely that component of it. But nonetheless, the actions they took ended up being the way that American industry ended up. Integrating. So after the Civil Rights Act was passed, NAM didn't stand in the way of that. There were people in NAM who were not at all pleased with the Civil Rights Act. And in fact, there were several Birchers in the NAM. And um, Kim Phillips Fines has written about those uh, really ultra conservative uh, people in the NAM in her book, Invisible Hands, or Visible Hands. I can't remember. And, 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 um, but at the end of the day, NAM stood by and supported the legislation. And the first thing they did was organize workshops to help companies and help their members integrate those plants so that they would be in compliance with the Civil Rights Act. They'd already been doing that because there were several, um, federal programs. If you were a contractor with the federal government, you also had to practice affirmative action beginning in 1963. And so they were very much uh, involved in that because many of their companies were government contractors and NAM helped formulate what affirmative action came to look like. It played an integral role in the development of affirmative action. And it supported affirmative action all through the 1980s when Ronald Reagan tried to, um, uh, abolish or uh, curb affirmative action, NAM supported it. Uh, And so that is a story that I think doesn't get told enough and that we need to think about as historians and political scientists, why capitalists would be so interested in affirmative action, because the way books had had typically seen NAM is that it's, oh, it's, uh, you know, conservative and you know, small-minded parochial. And that—that that is not at all what the organization was. So that was the other thing I was surprised to find, that it was very global-minded and very interested in cosmopolitan, um, not interested in cosmopolitan, it exhibited cosmopolitan thinking.
1: And before we go on to the internationalist piece, which is this fascinating part of this book, on the affirmative action and employing African-Americans and women, you know, as I was reading, and I thought, well, this, Adam Smith would be thrilled. He thought the people would be very rational about who they picked to do. Why would you? Why would you not take on a good worker if you? Why would you care? But on the other hand, we have cared, and in fact, there's been enormous discrimination against uh, all sorts of people who are. Oh, since Ruth Bader Ginsburg has just passed, somebody who is first in her class and can't get a job, or. Justice O'Connor, who was second in her class at Stanford, and she couldn't get a job. So, so capitalism actually doesn't work this way. So, I'm I'm wondering why why do I mean, why were they so rational? Because it doesn't seem that that business had been rational in other sectors. Is there something about manufacturing that? but what is it why would why would they behave differently from so many other sectors in the economy that continued this kind of discrimination for so long that
0: is a great question and i mean part of it is that you know don't get me wrong i'm sure as i as i said they would harbor the same racial prejudices but if you do they did look at it from an in the adam smith economic you know hire the best person possible Because they were fighting unions. Uh, And I have to think that if if the unions weren't there, um, that they might not have been as progressive on this issue. Um, And I think the other answer to this question is they're a trade association talking to um, their member companies. I compare them in this book to similarly how... So companies... manufacturers balked. I don't, I mean, I don't want the reader, anyone to misinterpret this. Manufacturers balked, just as you said, there was discrimination. It was, it was custom. It was uh, too hard to change. It was, uh, it was, if a, if a corporation, if a factory tried to integrate, they could expect, um, uh, resistance from their workers and there was resistance from middle management. There was just tons of resistance. It was a very difficult thing to do. Similarly in unions, unions were doing the same thing, um, figuring out uh, how to integrate their unions. Walter Ruther uh, very famously um, fought very hard for civil rights, we, we remember that photograph of him marching in the march uh, for jobs, the March on Washington in 1963 with A. Philip Randolph and and Whitney Young. And and so Ruther's knew that it was the practical economic thing for him to do to integrate his unions so that um, there wouldn't be some group of people that could be used as strike breakers um, against him, that the unions uh, in, contained everyone. But the, what they used to say about Ruther was, you know, he, he wants to integrate, you know, everything except his own unions, because it was very hard for him. And I think of Nam as in that same situation, the leadership, they were the leaders of the business community. They were the elite of the business community. They wanted factories to be integrated. So they put in place the, um, the workshops and the pamphlets and the literature and they did the research and they had speakers, all with the aim of helping manufacturers integrate. Did, did manufacturers integrate? You don't know, no, it, 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 you know, I'm sure some did. So I wouldn't say that manufacturers were special or different from any other sector of the economy, they're all dealing with the same uh, struggle. But uh, what makes NAM different is that it's a leadership organization. And so their official position is that they are for racial integration and they are going to try to make it happen. And I think they did try to make it happen, just like I think Walter Ruther tried to make it Mm -hmm. happen. um, Because they said, this is the future. So I I think that they... um, were yeah. Anyway, that's that's what no, I think. No,
1: that's great. And and is is and um. Before we go on to the internationalist piece, do you think the same dynamic is at play with women, with workers with disabilities, and also you have that really interesting part about Chinese Americans and the Chinese Exclusion Act earlier mm-hmm. in the history of the NAM? Is it? Is it all basically the same, or is there something distinguishing the other cases from the cases of integrating African American workers?
0: I'm a historian, and so I believe very much in the historical context. Uh, NAM was very good on women around the time of the ERA. So in the 1920s, um, they actually, uh, some members of Ma, NAM, supported the ERA and they had um, at their conference, their annual conference, they had a panel on the ERA, ERA the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, where women would come and, and talk about how important the Equal Rights Amendment was. Well, the reason Nam was interested in that at this time was that women in unions were fighting for protective legislation that would protect them as women, such as uh, the limitation of working hours. And, that, you know, there's that famous case, Muller versus Oregon, which was exactly about that. And so NAM did not want to have to give women workers uh, separate, um, you know, limitations of hours or, separ- you know, what, the demands that women were making because they were women Uh, that women workers were making because they were women. NAM did not want to do that. And the Equal Rights Amendment suggested that that wouldn't wouldn't happen. So that's one of the things that is behind that. But the other thing is that women were not typically allowed into unions. And over and over, the NAM respected women's work. They said, you women, For whatever reason, and usually what they said, so I'm getting this information from their periodicals. They um, had, over the years, they had a a variety of different uh, publications that they published, but they ran regular issues about women. And they even hired um, head of the women's department uh, who went on to become head of the women's department in the U.S. Department of Labor. And so their argument was women work hard they they for whatever reason that they they're trying to prove their worth they're trying to prove that they can do the job they work hard they work more efficiently than men they don't gold brick they don't and so what they Nam thought was that men are always trying to slow down the line men are trying to uh, main you know not overwork because they want to uh, control the um speed of labor women don't have that they felt that women were more individuals than men Men were given to the collective behavior of unions, but women were working individually, either because they had their own ambitions or their feminism that uh, wanted them to make it as women. So there are a lot of those reasons. Um, there's always ulterior reasons when you look for them. But it's, it is surprising to open NAMS magazine and have here the speeches of women supporting the ERA. And they're pretty radical. Uh, and yet, they, there they are, printed
1: in Nam's magazine. No, yeah, and it's always a reminder of just how long the ERA has been around, and not yeah, that's <laughs> not true. in the Constitution. <laughs> um, yes, and, and, well, and, and, supported it. You no, know, and it's such an interesting interplay because, of course, those regulations are simultaneously patronizing, and those and the court, the language from uh, the, the case that you cited from Homer is it's so patronizing. It's painful whenever I uh, teach that case. But on the other hand, they think they're being progressive. They, they see women like children as uh, humans that need protection. And they think that it's been a great idea to pass child labor laws and that passing laws for women is equally progressive, uh, which, which mm-hmm. brings us back to a big theme uh, in the book, which is this notion of, of what is progressive, what is conservative, and what is, is liberal. And you're very careful. And as a political theorist, I appreciated that with the terms of of why the NAM has often been considered as conservative, but you see it as more liberal. And I wondered if, if you talk a little bit more about this focus on international trade, internationalism, and cosmopolitanism.
0: Yeah, this is a big, this is um, a big topic. So liberal internationalists um, who believed um, that the world should trade together, that we should, um, you know, try to reach beyond borders, that um, we'd uh, we'd be better off as a world as we all got along together and traded instead of trying to guard our markets um, that in the early 20th century, even the mid 20th century, really all the way up to Reagan was seen as a, a progressive view um, it was cosmopolitan um, and it was open to other points of views and other cultures. It was not associated with conservatives at all. Conservatives were uh, were like protectionists, people who wanted to build a wall to keep the world out. Uh, people who you know, manufacturers wanted high tariffs. So this gets tricky because Nam, is, especially during the 20th, uh, the early 20th century, it supports the tariff because its members support the tariff. But right alongside of supporting the tariff, there are companies and members of NAM that want to expand trade. And for a little while, and this is the early work that William Appleman Williams did and um, uh, others of those revisionist historians, for a little while, NAM is able to both advocate for the expansion of trade because uh, American manufacturers, especially in times of depression, want to sell their goods abroad. That's always they're looking for markets. OK. Um, but American manufacturers also want to protect the American market as a national market. And so there is this tension in NAM between these two goals. And these goals were there from the beginning. People, companies would join NAM because they thought that NAM was going to fight for the tariffs, for the high tariffs. And the Republican Party, which was seen and regarded as conservative during this time in the early 20th century, the Republican Party stood for the tariff. It stood for protection. It stood for Main Street. It was local, it was um, parochial. And um, NAM was not that completely. There were other members that were just, they were interested in expanding trade. And so for a little while, what they tried to do was, we'll have this policy of reciprocity where we'll make specific trade deals that allow most of the high tariffs to remain in place, but we'll make trade deals with countries in Latin America so that we can get um, raw materials that we need for our factories without having to pay tariffs on those. So there was this policy of reciprocity um, and then there were people in the NAM that pushed that and said, well, you know, it would be really great if we took the control of tariffs away from Congress and put it in, again, this is where the NAM is more progressive, in terms of a government agency removing it from the Congress, where there's a lot of bickering and grandstanding and log rolling, um, and because tariffs should be administered scientifically with the uh larger view of the economy as a whole, let's form a special tariff committee to do that. And that was always regarded, that was something the Democratic Party wanted. The Democratic Party was always the free trade party. The Democratic Party couldn't get, you know, they really wanted the uh, tariff commission. And so part of the, one of the arguments I make in the book is that Everyone sees the NAM as Republican and most of its members were very, very much Republicans, but they always would go with the Democrats on these issues of trade. So they they were the ones that wanted the Trade Commission and the presidents that helped them most and the administrations that helped them most were the liberal Democratic um, um, administrations like Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. So NAM's trying to get these things and they're trying to straddle. Yeah, we know our membership likes tariffs, but we also know some of our membership wants uh, to be able to trade. And the thing that's impeding our ability to trade is our tariffs are too high. If there's some way we could, you know, try to ameliorate that, we'd like to do that. So even though, you know, they were seen as Republican and they really didn't have many connections in the Democratic Party, whenever the Democratic Party... um, embraced free trade, as it did with Wilson, and then later with Franklin Roosevelt, non-leaders could not have been happier. And so I comment on the irony that even though they were very conservative and Republican and protectionist, their leaders were working for and supporting Democratic, uh, liberal Democrats like Franklin Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson in terms of free trade, and this continues the UN, the Marshall Plan. If you're alive in the 19 after World War II, uh, these are liberal, progressive, democratic, fair deal. Harry Truman supports the UN. Harry Truman supports the Marshall Plan. Conservatives like John Bricker are hate all of this, and they hate the the spending foreign spending, uh, spending to support um, allies and develop economies across the world in order to combat communism. Uh, Republicans like John Bricker hate that, but international Republicans like Eisenhower end up supporting that. But those were always liberal internationalist. The idea that we could communicate with the rest of the world, much more cosmopolitan. Um, and so NAM is really bifurcated, and part of the story is tracing that conflict between its protectionist and its globalists. And I think that's kind of a, a, a microcosm of what has happened to the United States, that political battle that I think we are currently in, is, a, is what the NAM had been fighting, really, its whole um, existence.
1: No, and, and and it seems I, 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 the takeaway from the book for me was that anybody who wants to think about the parties needs to read the book because you can see that these cleavages are already there. It, this is not just Trump versus Hillary Clinton, or Trump versus Biden. This this is these are these issues, these tugs back and forth between. What you call in the book, the, the rugged individualism and our conception of ourselves as individualists versus this more, um, uh, more of a respect for science, data, experts, which the NAM all invests in that they don't have this language of individualism. So it's capitalist, but it's not that kind of capitalist. I think it helps make sense of, of the parties over time and where the parties are right now. Um, let me, let me ask you a bit about that. But before I do, let's, let's talk a little bit about neoliberalism, because I think it's one of the really helpful, for me, parts of this book as to how you want us to, to think a little bit differently about neoliberalism, its roots, and, and, and what, what the content is. So I was wondering if you'd just say a little bit more about that before we talk about Trump and, and, and how the book maps on to today's politics.
0: Yeah, uh, neoliberalism has always been a confusing term for me, as I think it is for many historians and even political scientists, because there are different groups of people working on it. Um, and uh, it certainly describes the um, economy. I guess the, the the mainstream version of neoliberalism is uh, a return to classical liberalism and um, a gutting of welfare programs. Um a gutting of unions uh you know think Reagan and Thatcher, and what they their administrations did when they took power in terms of combating what they saw as the welfare state and bringing in a a, a new life for rugged individualism. It's also been associated with uh globalism in the sense that what global organizations the global infrastructure of world trade has tried to do is um enforce that kind of uh, neoliberal capitalism, which would be another way to say it would be classical liberal capitalism, the kind of capitalism that isn't New Deal liberalism or uh, Labor Party Britain during the 20th century, the kind of capitalism um, that is more envisioned by uh, neoliberals like Friedrich Hayek, that globally what needed to be done was to help other countries think about themselves as part of a, a global community, not their own national interest. And so that there was always this tension, uh, even during the 20th century uh, in England, wanting to have a social welfare system. And yet uh, part of that social welfare system demanded that they have restricted trade. Well, globalists wanted that trade not to be restricted and to not have the social welfare system, but to uh, allow and prioritize the openness of borders and not protecting national jobs. So um, I've gotten myself a little off track, but there, as you can see, there are many ways of looking at neoliberalism. And so the one of the ways I do this is the thing to me that's always been difficult is when I read uh the new literature, like for instance, Quinn Slobodian has written a new book um, called Globalists, which I read. And it really, that really helped me think about this. And he described it as something that um, has been occurring, that kind of, um, Global thinking in terms of global rules for world trade as something that had been going on since World War I and the destruction of European empires, because European empires had once provided the global rules of the road for international trade. World War I and decolonization uh, and the rise of liberal nationalist d- democracies after that kind of um, disrupt. Uh, the global rules of the road and the building of international infrastructure. That's uh, Slobodian's argument. But when you look at U.S. history, um, liberal Democrats have always been investing in building those um, globalist institutions, uh, beginning with Woodrow Wilson and the League of Nations, the World Court. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, also had an international vision Um uh, for the post-war world, and then you have the United Nations. Those, ha- those have been liberal democratic. And if you look at the rhetoric of liberal Democrats around trade, it has been about cooperating with the world, uh, getting putting in place an international infrastructure that includes um, The U.N., but the many divisions of the U.N., like the World Health Organization and the International Labor Organizations. And is there a way we can organize the economy at a world level? It's going to be organized according to capitalist terms. But the very idea that you would try to organize some kind of world, um, I don't want to say world government, because that's that's such a touch point for the Mm -hmm. conspiracy theorists. But that's basically what's going on. that has always been seen as liberal, democratic, Wilsonian. I mean, Wilson's name uh, has been given to that uh, American project, and it was always uh, opposed by conservatives. So as I'm doing this, as I'm reading the readings about neoliberalism, it, um, I, can't, I'm, I, I find it hard to distinguish between how people are writing about neoliberalism and what liberal internationalism is. Um, and I think that's because there's just been two different, um, research agendas and philosophical agendas in terms of the research that's been done. And I think my book, I'm trying to bring these two stories together. Uh, so the people who think of liberal internationalism as this very progressive cosmopolitan thing, and then there are people who think of neoliberalism as a new form of imperialism called neo-imperialism, um, and and of course, there's a long history of American historians who see liberal internationalism as basically American imperialism. So, so there's that. So it's, it's a question of tone and, you know, are we calling this imperialist or are we calling it democracy? Are we calling, you know, it's, right. it's, um, it's, it's trying to sort through the different rhetorics that have um, come up to describe what is essentially the same thing, which is building international institutions uh, an international infrastructure for trade and for, I don't know, doing things like preventing pandemics.
1: Well, and, and you're, you're helping make sense of uh, some things that puzzle historians and political scientists and sociologists and others, which is, what is conservatism in America? What, How does liberalism evolve and change over time? What is the relationship among all of these different forms of liberalism, both the more corporatist and the more individualistic, and 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 how does liberalism map onto capitalism, which is 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 a hard is, is a hard for political theorists and others to and people have spent a lot of time on this. So I think you really help make sense of these cross-cutting cleavages for us. And you know, and as you write in the introduction and also in the epilogue, this has relevance for today's divisions about these same issues as to you you said it yourself you want to build tariffs and walls or do you want to have more of global trade and i I wanted to give you an opportunity to say a little bit more obviously the book was finished and much has happened since as to how you see it speaking to today's current political climate
0: yeah um you know, one of the ironies um, I want to speak about today's climate, but I think that one of the interesting hooks in the book as well has to do with this as these manufacturers are building a more global world and trying and contributing to and building global institutions like the um, World Trade Organization, for instance, they're simultaneously destroying manufacturing in the United States. And so the idea of a national association of manufacturers. Is is somewhat um, not appropriate when you're talking about Nam in the 80s. I have a story of in the or in the 1990s. In the 1990s, Nam has opened up for foreign companies. Um, and, and again, if that if that is not globalist, that Toyota becomes a member of Nam, and uh, because it has a plant in America, and uh, there's some German uh, Siemens becomes a member of Nam. So it's not just the the word national has no meaning in national association manufacturers at this point, because it went all in on, on globalism.
1: Um, (laughs) It's such an irony.
0: I know. So that, I mean, and that's the irony, you know, of this, of the association they're supposed to be protecting manufacturers and yet they've, uh, you know, basically destroyed the manufacturing sector in the United States. That's not completely true because manufacturing is still very strong in the United States. The United States is still the second manufacturer of goods after China. So the manufacturing hasn't actually disappeared from the United States. Um, and in, in part because of the National Association of Manufacturers, again, being progressive and adapting to a new new situation, it's um, it's it's all it's mostly automated now. It's got a lot of technology and it, it just is formatted and it looks very different because it's part of and tied into global supply chains. Manufacturing is happening in the United States. It just doesn't look like it did in the 1970s. And um, hence the issue with our current political situation. Manufacturers right now are actually doing okay, but there is still this... Group of the old um, manufacturing sector workers, uh, many of whom were in unions, and see that it's globalization that has has killed those jobs. There is the tension, the tension that we see right now with Trump. Um, I mean, I cannot believe it. I, I have to say, you know, all of the work on lobbying is always geared to. How, my, how hegemonic the corporate liberal globalists are. That neoliberalism is so hegemonic. And yet Trump gets elected in the United States and is putting tariffs on. That is not, that is not something that any uh, corporate liberal neoliberal right. manufacturing businessmen would want. And I always thought the businessmen would like stand up and not let this happen. Um, so Trump has been, I think, a huge surprise for everyone. Uh, Nam has a very tenuous relationship with Trump because, on the one hand, they love that he's drawing attention back to their sector, and he claims to be for manufacturing. On the other hand, he's disrupting all of the supply chains that the new manufacturing has adjusted to. So he's actually clumsily trampling on everything the new Nam since the 1990s has built, in terms of a global manufacturing uh, sector. Um, And in terms of immigration, NAM has typically, I talk about immigration in the book, NAM has typically supported uh, looser immigration policies. Um, it's, It's difficult politically for them because they are represented by the Republican Party in the 1920s, but overall, they tend to support uh, immigration because, again, they want workers and they want a large labor pool, especially when there are labor unions. They definitely want a larger labor pool. Um, so the NAM um, today run by, uh, headed by Jay Timmons is, you know, pro-immigrant, but many of their um, members are Republicans. So they have to finesse this, uh, as the NAM has always had to finesse what it it's globalist aspirations with its, um, largely Republican membership. Um, so this, yeah, what's happening right now is the attack on neoliberalism, the attack on globalists. It is as if the old conservatives who I talk about. So for a little while in the 1950s, this conservative cabal takes a hold of Nam, um, and they and John Birchers and some of them are isolationists and, um, and the struggle over Nam in the 1950s is between the globalists and and this kind of ultra-conservative uh, John Bricker, John Bircher type of uh, Republican. And it's almost as if, you know, that old John Bricker cohort, ha- Main Street, has arisen uh, to fight the globalists Um so I don't know if I can say any anything more about that, except that it's we're in quite a moment. And, and Nam is really uh, caught in between again.
1: Well, Jennifer, it's an incredibly rich book. And it's we've kind of just hit the little tip of the iceberg in the interview. But I want to encourage people to get the full book and take a look at this really complicated and page-turning history. It's beautifully written. It's got lots of great characters in it. Um, it made me wonder what your next project is going to be. <laughs> Thank you for
0: asking. Um, I I've got many ideas, uh, and the, the the project I've been wanting to work on is a more personal history of my family history because uh, I have uh, an interesting story of my father who was. Um, who's Mexican, but passed as Anglo his whole life. Um, and I want to tell that story. It's wow. it, it really is very far afield from anything I've written academically, but I think it's a story that is really pertinent right now, uh, given everything that's going on in the United States. Um, so it'll be a, a more personal story.
1: Well, when you write that, you will have to come back to the New Book Network. We <laughs> would definitely want to hear about it. Um, For now, Jennifer A. Delton has written The Industrialists, How the National Association of Manufacturing Shaped American Capitalism. It's published by Princeton University Press in 2020. You can get it from the Princeton University Press website, or I'm encouraging people to use bookshop.org, which will ship it from a brick and mortar independent bookstore to your door. It is obviously available in all the other locations that you know about and how to get books. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And I really appreciate you sharing the book with me.
0: Thank you, Susan.